Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Auf Wiedersehen, Auf Wiedersehen, which is, of course, German for goodbye and good riddance. 80 years ago this week, the U-boats were ordered to withdraw from the U.S. East Coast as the Americans began to master anti-submarine warfare. This brought to an end the so-called German second happy time and brought great relief to the Allies of the Battle of the Atlantic. Yes, you're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, where we can squeeze an anniversary out of any, <laughs> any well, week. Well, b- b- big times in the Atlantic, you know, 80 years yeah. ago. It Re- really were. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, I mean, the, the, the end of the—I mean, basically, that's the end. Of, the end of the second happy, happy time. That's the end of the battle of the Atlantic for the Germans. Should we say? Should we go stick our neck that far out? They've lost. Um, Come on, Jim. Well, you, you, I mean, you think they've lost the battle of the Atlantic on the second of September, nineteen thirty-nine? Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, no, I, I think they get to the point where they can't win it in May 1941. But, you know, they, yeah. they palpably lose the Battle of the Atlantic in May 1943, so a year on, because that's when the U-boats are withdrawn. But but yeah. the the second happy time is, is, is really interesting because, actually, America entering the war doesn't help mm. the British at all in terms of the Battle no. of the Atlantic because, of course, the person who's commander-in-chief of the um, US fleet... Uh, the US yeah. Navy, rather, is Ernest King. And Ernest King is a very, very ardent Pacific first man, rather. Pacificist. The Pacificist. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and this, uh, this whole thing about Germany first, it's only kind of Germany first to a point, because yeah. what it certainly doesn't mean is, is that they're not going to bother with the Japanese and they're not going to yeah. bother with the fighting in the, in the, in the, in the Far East or anything like that, which, of course, as we know, they absolutely well, do. Well, it means Germany... Germany first for the for the um, army in the USAAF. It doesn't mean Germany first for the US Navy. Right, and it doesn't even mean, it, and it means Germany first for the US Army, but it certainly doesn't mean 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 Germany exclusively for the US Army. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, as as people like John McManus have, have brilliantly pointed out, the US Army is in far greater forces by the beginning of nineteen forty three um, in the Pacific than the Marine Corps is. Yeah, even though yeah, the yeah, Marine Corps hold the narrative, yeah. um, but but what it means so, so basically from the autumn of ninety after the Atl- Mid Atlantic um, Charter uh, in the yeah. August nineteen forty one, 
It's agreed that the Atlantic Fleet, the US Atlantic Fleet, will be properly activated, will play a part in convoy escort work and, yeah. and, and escort protection. And so after Pearl Harbor, most of that gets withdrawn. And because King is the head of the Navy and on the um, and obviously on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and is an incredibly forthright, very yeah. suffer no fools, grumpy yeah. bastard. I mean, he's a brilliant, yeah. brilliant man, but he's not he's not exactly Mr. Charm. Um, and everyone's yeah. absolutely terrified of him. It's completely obvious. Yeah. He kind yeah. of tends to get his way on, on, on most things and certainly doesn't when it comes to the Atlantic. So, of course, obviously, the, the, from the U.S. Navy's point of view, the naval effort has to be focused on the Pacific, which means large numbers of the, of the Atlantic fleet get taken away. More than that, um, yeah. though, they start to say he, he, he introduces a thing called the Mid-Ocean Escort Force. Um, so he says, hang on a minute, you know, we're not going to do this now, so you now need to kind of go all the way over. Um, and so this means that Canadian Canadian ships, escort ship groups, and British Royal Navy escort groups, instead of going halfway, meeting the Americans, and then going back to, you know, so you would come from, say, Liverpool or wherever, you would meet yeah. the mid-Atlantic, and then you'd go back again with a convoy. You're now doing the whole thing. And for the and then he says, oh, and by the way, what about doing a kind of a short leg escort, setting up short leg escort groups as well, going from kind of you know Halifax in Nova Scotia down the east coast of America, and the Canadians sort of go, oh, okay then, very well if that's what you say, because obviously they're the the kind of the junior partner, but they're absolutely yeah. massively punching above their weight because you know they start yeah. off the war in 1939 with something like ten warships. By the beginning of 1941, they've got 81. That's kind of increased again by the beginning of 1942. And by the beginning of 1942, well, by, the, by kind of spring of 1942, 90% of their warships are in action, which is really not, not on at all. No. Uh, and that's because the Americans have kind of bugged out, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so the onus, yeah. the onus is on them. But, but the reason why there is this slaughter off the East Coast is because those East Coast shipping lanes from kind of northern part of the of the United States all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico and down into the Caribbean and then down the east coast of South America, down to Argentina, mm. Brazil, all that kind of stuff. Mm. They are among the most congested in the world. Yeah. But they're not sailing in convoys because they're no. the far side of the Atlantic and they never have. And obviously being in a convoy is an inherently inefficient way of shipping because... Yeah. Well, and there's the assumption they don't. There's the assumption that they don't need to. That that, that yeah. That um uh, you know that that how are the U-boats possibly going to get there? Because that does look improbable, doesn't it? Yeah. Initially, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it, it it seems entirely improbable. Yes, and and to be fair, a Mark Seven going from Bremenhaven all the way yeah. to the Caribbean. That's a yeah. hell of a that's a hell of a journey. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a good two and a half weeks to get there. Yeah, one one of the reasons why there's this this second happy time, these rich pickings, is mm. because this these sea lanes going down the east coast of America into the Gulf of Mexico, into the Caribbean, yeah. and all the way down the east coast of South America, are some of the most congested in the world. You know, the, yeah. these are just absolutely heaving with ships, but they're not in convoy, and the Americans yeah. haven't anticipated this, because as you point out, why why would you? Understandably, why why on earth would you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you're a long you're a long way from the from uh, Brest, aren't you? Let's put it that a way. hell of a long way. Yeah, yeah, you re you really are, and it's a it's a hell of a trek to get out there when you're only. But you can also you can see by the same token though why and and um uh 
why therefore the concern that Vichy um, colonies, if they fall into the hands of the um, Germans, um, could shift the balance on this. Yeah, that they're wor- they're worried about that sort of in the in 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 theory. Yes, but they're not expecting it to deliver anything. In, the Germans to be able to deliver anything in terms of in practice, are they? No, and yet they and yet they still manage to, which is extraordinary, really. Yeah, it, it is amazing what they managed to achieve in the that first part of 1942, considering what yeah. their situation is. So, so at yeah. the very start of 1942, Dönitz has only got 91 operational U-boats. Yeah, you know, I mean, they start off the war with, what is it, 47 or something like that in 1939. Yeah. Obviously, they've had losses and all the rest of it. Obviously, they've been building up and increasing the number of U-boats. But even by the beginning of 1941, that is that is not a, you know, they've effectively doubled what they had at the start of the war, yeah. which isn't great, really, when you consider no, but, you're putting most of your eggs in that basket by... But it's also, as as baskets go and eggs go, it's the, it's the, right, it's the right one if they, you know... It is. It, 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 because uh, you know the thing we talked about for, th- for wang on about for more than three years now is that the, is that for the allies it is all about supply it is all about logistics it's all about it's all about bringing your global resources to bear and the the one way to the actual one way to stop that is with u-boats it's it, yes it, it's, but but what's amazing is that the okw despite yeah. um Raider, the, the you know the the head of the yeah. Kriegsmarine, banging on about it, and despite Dernitz, particularly the commander of the U-boat, yeah. or the BDU, um, banging on about it, that is not appreciated, and there is an appreciation yeah. by the planning department of the OKW under General Wallermont that says in and I think it is March 1942, and it says says the yeah. Atlantic and the Mediterranean are of equal strategic importance. That's like yeah. no, they're not. <laughs> they just yeah. aren't. You know, the Atlantic yeah. is of far greater strategic importance to you in Germany. But but yeah. what this means is of 91 operational boats means that they've got 23 in the Mediterranean because of the importance of the Mediterranean yeah. in Hitler's mind, because he's so obsessed with the southern flank and the soft underbelly, etc., etc. So that's 23 yeah. out of your 91. Then 60% totally are going into uh, are doing repairs which means you've only got 12 available for the atlantic in january 1942 god that is ridiculous it's ridiculous so, so to, to what extent is he doing that to keep his allies to keep the italians on side we know he doesn't think like that we know he doesn't think in terms of he doesn't treat his allies well the mediterranean isn't to do with that is it no is the it, mediterranean is, is to do with the fact that he old old debt to mussolini because no. after all he, he feels a sort of sense of political debt to mussolini isn't is the as the progenitor of fascism and all that sort of thing is, the, is there any of that it, in it it's, at all or it's is it? vulnerability of romania and the balkans so yeah. the balkans yeah. then romania then plesty the only source of real yeah. oil crude oil that he's got um and it's because He's got the Eastern Front, he's got the Western Front, he can't have a third front. Yeah. That's really threatened. Yeah. yeah which but, is why but, he reinforces Rommel over in you know in February nineteen forty one. Yeah, but but the, the Med kind of is part of the Western Front and the way the Allies are deciding to deal with it, isn't it? Yes, the, but the, it is, the, but the, it is still the, the way to close down the Med is to close down the Atlantic. The way to close yeah, down of course, but he Western doesn't get front that. is to close down the Atlantic. I know, it's just but the thing is is it's lunatic. The thing is is he's you know it's blindingly obvious. Yes, but the, but, but the key to keeping the North Africa campaign alive is what? Yeah. It's shipping. Yeah. And where yeah, does that shipping go from? It goes from Greece, it goes from southern Italy, across the Mediterranean to North Africa. Yeah, but you isolate the Med from the from the Atlantic and, and then you... But the you best know. way anyway. to protect your shipping is, is, is yeah. U-boats. 
So they, it's amazing because they've got so they've got ninety one U boats available, operational U, U boats in January yeah. nineteen forty three. Twenty three yeah. in the bed. Sixty percent of those ninety one are undergoing some kind of repairs or whatever, and that means that means that only a dozen are available in the Atlantic. <laughs> you know, really against Dernitz's. I mean, no, he's absolutely yeah. incensed by this. Yeah. Um, but you know, what can you do? Yeah. Um, but but what's amazing, you know, and obviously a handful more do manage to get across. I mean, it's very interesting reading Teddy Surin's memoir in his diary. Mm. And he was commander of U-564. And, you know, they, he can only get across there by using the Milchkur, Milchkur yeah. which yeah, is, yeah. The, you know, these larger U-boats which carry fuel and you go and sort yeah. of... Yeah, sort of auxiliary, like a, auxiliary supply U-boat, yeah. Right, and uh, so he gets those and, you know, and then he has a... He, he's one of those that has a kind of a very fruity time in, in kind of... In February 1942, mm. because mm. suddenly it's it really is happy days. There's lots of this yeah. independent shipping, and the yeah. number of of ships that get sunk is is you know, is, is pretty legion. You know, yeah. um, 92 gets sunk in March 1942. Yeah. 125 ships get sunk in May. 144 in June, of which 121 are sunk yeah. independently. You know, yeah. so those are out of convoy. So the Americans finally get into gear with the convoy system in May 1942. Yeah. But but not completely, you know, get it, setting up the convoy system doesn't mean that every ship is now in convoy. No. Because you've got supply chains and they've got to be maintained. And, you you know, and, and obviously the whole problem with a convoy is you've got, whatever, you've got 40 ships. Yeah. It would have been arriving in drips and drabs into ports are suddenly arriving in a, in a rush. Over, can overwhelm ports and stuff and all that. You, so it, so you, it's you just need simply and all that. Yeah. 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 So, so you can, you can might want to put a, a, a convoy system in place, but the, the simple economics and, and requirements of, of supply and demand are such that you just can't, you have to take mm. that risk. Yeah. But what that means is that in June, 1942, the U-boats sink 636,926 tonnes of Allied shipping, which is the most the U-boats sink in a single month yeah. up until that point. Yeah. But at the beginning of the war, Dernitz reckons they need to sink half a million tonnes a month yeah, yeah, to yeah. destroy the British yeah. shipping lanes. And they've only this is only the third time they've achieved that. And he has also had to completely, you know, th this basis of half a million tons was on the assumption that the British would need to keep importing their food. Yeah, which and of course, course they have switched switched away from. Now well, it's really interesting because the yeah. harvest of 1939, 46 yeah. million tons of grain. Yeah, um, 53 million tons by 1941, 80 million tons in 1942. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, so. In contrast, the German harvest is down every single year from 1939. Mm. And arguably their, their requirements are greater because they've now got vast numbers of slave labour who also need to be fed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their population has swollen massively rather than decreased. Yeah, yeah. And and even though they want, even though what they want to do is starve some of those people to death anyway. Yes. I mean, because... But they still need to work. Let, 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 yeah, exactly. They still need to work. So... Let's let's you know the inherent contradictions. Um, but but what is also really interesting about this, just about the whole critical, you know, was the you know were we you know uh, Churchill sort of is my biggest worry was the Atlantic yeah, and all yeah, this yeah. sort of stuff. So uh, total imports to Britain in January nineteen forty two two million and six thousand. May nineteen forty two at the height of the second happy time two million two hundred fourteen thousand. Yeah. So in other words. 
they're absolutely static or going up. It's yeah. making no difference whatsoever. Yeah. And then they move in. So in July, Donuts then goes, hang on a minute, they're now in convoys. This is not worth the effort going all across the Atlantic. It's not mm. very efficient. So we'll then go into the mid-Atlantic. We'll go back into the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. But, but at this point, the British have cracked, or the Allies have cracked very long-range aircraft. This is the yeah. Liberators, the B-24s, yeah. with their um, cavity magnetrons on, with Huff Duff, all this kind of stuff. And despite the fact that the, the Germans have the B-Dienst, you know, they're... they're Bletchley Park equivalent of crack the convoy cipher. It makes absolutely no difference whatsoever, really, yeah. because the whole point is what you want to do is you want to make sure that the U-boats are not on the surface, which is where yeah. they do most of the attacking, because that's where they can operate at 14, 15 knots. Yeah. When they're under the water, they're at, they're at kind of sort of walking pace. Well, uh, but but also intelligence-wise, it's all it's mutual, isn't it? Because the because um, ultras cracked what the u-boats are saying to each other so they they don't they don't actually mind that the convoy ciphers have been compromised because it it's a way of it's a way of knowing what the germans know um yeah exactly uh, and, in, and in fact uh, to an extent telling them what they want them to what they want them to know and what they want them to act on so that they can then attack them themselves i mean which is yeah the most extraordinary sort of the other way round of of using uh, code breaking is that actually it's a way of it's a it, being not bothered about being compromised is is sort of well. It's not they're not bothered, but they they're making use of the fact that the yeah. beadings have got into their codes. Anyway, um, I, I, to change subject completely. Yes. Right? Um. So you know, I went to Spike Milligan's house the weekend. Before yes, last, yes, 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 yes. And and all that. So I've and and also we're going to be talking to Ian Hislop and Nick Newman soon about about Spike and about yeah. um the genesis of the Goon Show. So I was I've done a little bit of um poking around and looking oh, at nice. bio. But biographies and stuff, and that the biographies of Spike Milligan are, 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 are wildly vari- variable, mainly because he took such command of what was written about him and lied a lot or embellished or whatever. <laughs> Particularly a lot of his a lot of his life around before the war and after the war. And there's a book by his agent Norma Farns that that you the minute you read the, the when you once you finish the introduction that she wrote, you can think right, this book is completely unreliable. There's no point. There's no point trying to engage with it. There's a book by um, Humphrey Barclay, I think, who's a who's a who was a comedy producer, right? Um, and is a massive Goons fan. But so I'm looking at after the after the war, Spike plays in this thing called the Bill Hall Trio, which is him and a violinist and a and a, a guy called Mulgrew who was a bass player, and, and they did a sort of wild. They dressed like tramps and they did this sort of wild music thing with a virtuoso violinist in the form of Bill Hall, and Spike Spike would do the jokes and all that. Anyway, they come to London. And Spike ends up gravitating to a pub called Grafton's, or it's known as Grafton's. It's now called Grafton's in Victoria. That's run by Jimmy Grafton, major, ex-major Jimmy Grafton. Yes. And Jimmy Grafton was in a company, Fourth Dorsets. And we have ways regular fans are going to enjoy this moment as I succeed yes. in linking Spike Milligan to the Battle of Arnhem. Yeah, that's because, just genius. <laughs> because Grafton was in a party that landed... Um, uh, on, on the, the night, uh, uh, yeah, uh, on the came the into the perimeter, um, and he brought in uh, a, an artillery observation officer called Tom Rose, and they joined up with Breeze Force around Oosterbeek Church and the Light Regiment's artillery positions, and Rose was able to call in artillery from his regiment and was one of the another source of artillery guided fire um, that helped 
uh, on the perimeter because he brought he brought another radio with him and, and linked up to 64th um, Regiment and was able to bring in gunfire. That meant that they weren't relying on the radio link they already had. So the radio link they already had wasn't overloaded. So there was another source of artillery support and signalling um, because of the Dorset's landing that night with Brilliant. Jimmy Grafton. And How so amazing. And Grafton ended up, Grafton ended up, Spike would sleep in Grafton's attic and all this sort of stuff in, in 1949, 1950. Um, Sellers, Peter Sellers would, would hang out in this pub with Seacombe and Michael Benteen. And they'd all hang out in this pub together. And Grafton was sort of Spike's initial agent and the script editor on the pilot scripts of The Goon Show. No. And set, and yeah, and call himself, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of Spike inspired argument about who did, who, who actually, because Spike was quite keen on the idea that he was a unique, a, a, a one off and that no one else had really helped. Fair enough. But, but Grafton was, Grafton was very, very, t- very much tied up in getting the goon show off the ground and and getting Spike Milligan's career on the go. And he was at Arnhem. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, well done. (laughs) Regular regular listeners. Yeah, that's very good. I've finally done it. (laughs) 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 But they'd they'd come, obviously, they'd they'd come all the way from um, Normandy, you know, with 43rd Division. And uh, and so he he, he gets an MC, I think, Grafton, um, and uh, maybe... uh, uh, nudging into that and finding out exactly where because what's interesting is 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 in one of the spike biographies it's all about oh jimmy grafton had swum the mers at arnhem and you're like no i don't think he did yeah 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 not sure exactly but 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 just sort of how kind of by the time by the time an agent and a comedy producer have got this stuff in got uh, put this into the spike book it's sort of detached from um kind of detached from you know, because the implication is that he's a paratrooper in one of the books. He's not in the Dorsets. Um, and so you have to go, you have to sort of, you have to sort of parse exactly who he is and where he's from. But he's in the Martin, in Martin Middlebrook's Arnhem 44. Jimmy Grafton is, is mentioned by name as, you know, it's the most successful party of, of a company of the Dorsets that gets. Well, isn't that amazing? Into, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been kind of, I've been actually sort of looking around a little bit to see if I can find a, a, a an infantry battalion to follow from from yeah. D-Day to the end of the war. Yeah. And yeah. I've whittled it down to two yeah. that I think would work. Yeah. One is the 9th DLI, because they're the yeah. only ones who are there at the beginning of Normandy and all the way at the end of the war. There's quite a lot of yeah. DLIs, but a couple of them come out at kind of autumn of, you know, winter of 1944. Yeah. yeah. And the other is the 4th Dorset. So I'm trying to find out what there is and whether there's just whether there's enough... Eyewitness accounts and they're territorials as well, so you've got that. I know, too, I know, so which I like. I like so, that. Uh, yeah, exactly. So you've got that kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, and obviously they're local to me. So I yeah. feel kind of, you know, I've written about the fourth Dorsets before in in the Normandy book. Yeah, but it'd be quite nice to kind of follow that up, really. But it's, again, it's just it's just whether there's enough there to kind of sustain a book. Well, you've got them at a big, you've got them at a big event there. You know, big. Big, big. Wow, big, exactly. You're hitting all the big, you're hitting all the big notes, aren't you? All the fence yeah. posts, they're there. Yeah. They go up into Drill Church Tower. Gerald Tilly, the, the lieutenant colonel, go. They go to, and uh, Philip Roper of C Company says, "This is in the Middlebrook." He goes, um, "We could see everything up to the trees, which came down to the edge of the river on the north bank, but nothing in the trees on the ground, which sloped steeply upwards from the river. That's where we walked. That's that section of ground at the, at the west of the perimeter where the ground does slope up." Um, Colonel well, Tilly said, gentlemen, we've bought it this time. I think he realised it was a pretty hairy operation. As for myself, I thought it unlikely we would get back. 
when I had my company A group, I tried to water it down as much as possible and told them we were going to do an important job to help the airborne people. And then, wow. you know, and then they're fed into the, you know. Um, well, he's got, uh, a, he's, got a, um, he's got his own Wikipedia page. It says here he was in the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment. Yes, and then transfers to the... Yes. Transfers, James Douglas found- Grafton, 19th of May, 1916 to 2nd, was a, um, 86, was a producer, yes. writer, and He looks a right, he looks a laugh, actually. Oh, he looks he like just- a proper chap. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It and looks you, like a and, lot of fun. And, but it's, I, I, but I, what's really interesting is he looks after Spike when Spike's really on his uppers. Yeah. And Milligan writes about about how he was depressed at the time and he'd have his depressions. And I just sort of think it's really interesting because Grafton would have known what men had been through. He would have known that people would have had combat fatigue or, yes. or a, a long-term effect, you know, because this is, this is five years after the war ends. That, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That he's he's got Milligan under his wing. Milligan, Milligan's into his thirties by this point. Yes, you know he's he's thirty two in nineteen in nineteen fifty. He's getting on, you know. Yeah, he's getting yeah. on for for someone who hasn't found what he wants to do yet. Yeah, um, especially in especially in the arts. And I think it, it it's it's just it's this really it's really really fascinating. And Grafton, like he ends up this sort of he ends up you know doing all sorts of um he's known as cogvos keeper of goons and voice of sanity he's the he's, <laughs> he's the he's the he ends up you know as the sort of center this pub is where tons of people like terry thomas and jimmy edwards drink and uh, and you know kenneth moore and tommy cooper they all gravitate to grafton's which i think might be worth a visit in uh uh, next time I'm in Victoria, to, to I mean, I've, the, the, at the comedy museum in Well, Bloomsbury, I think this is absolutely brilliant. I, I, we yeah. should go and do play homage to the Grafton, shouldn't we? I think we should. But, but it's, I mean, it's clear that he knows that he knew absolutely everybody: Terry Thomas, Dick yeah. Emery, Kenneth yeah. Moore. Yeah, and he wrote more than five hundred programs, including two hundred sitcoms. I mean, he was a he was a proper well, lad, proper lad. But 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 with the with the you know. With the Dorsets. I wonder if he whether he wrote anything about his mem- about his time or whether he's an IWM or something. All right. I'll look him up. Let, what you hear right now, ladies and gentlemen, is James Holland's... Uh, the the brain. S- the spider cogs. sense tingling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. I'm not well, going to Ed- Jimmy Edwards was also at Arnhem. He was a supply pilot. That's why um, he, he was in the... He, he was burned badly in the, in the resupply efforts... Um, uh, flying a Dakota, which is, or I think a Dakota, which is why he had that moustache was to was to cover his burns on his face. Um, uh, God, it's amazing, isn't it? All these people. I mean, you know, of yeah. course they were in the war because yeah. just everyone was. Yeah, yeah. It's a reminder, isn't it? Yeah, he, of the yeah, totality Jimmy, of it. Exactly. Yeah, Jimmy Edwards was shot. Was a member of the Guinea Pig Club. Was, sh- was shot down in his Dakota at Arnhem. At Arnhem. Anyway, we're mm. going to take a very quick break and we'll be back because I've succeeded in linking two of my favourite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, I'm Murray and James Holland. Um, uh, uh, for those of you who've been long-term listeners, you probably think I, my my mission is accomplished now that I've managed to link the Goon Show to... You can stop now, you're retiring at the end of the week. <laughs> get, get We Have Ways Fest out of the way and that's it, I quit. I've done it. Now, on the subject of which, <laughs> yes. We Have Ways Fest, um, those of you um, uh, who, again, have been listening regularly, you will know this, those of you who are new to it, maybe heard me talking about it on Dermot O'Leary's show on Saturday morning. Yeah, that was a good plug, mm-hmm. wasn't it? This is it. It's big week this week. We have ways big week. We're all heading to Black Pit Brewery this week for our three-day festival. The weather is set extremely fair. The big tents go up. Well, Wednesday. actually, it looks like there might be a little bit of rain on Friday night. Yes, it, uh, which which might not be a bad thing. Yeah. Could do it settles little... down the dust. <laughs> settles down the dust before the tanks come dust in. Dust means death. <laughs> dust um, means death, exactly. Um, <laughs> the, the... <laughs> so the tents go in on Wednesday. The beer barrels are being rolled into the site all week to cope with the logistical demands of our thirsty festival guys who did drink it dry on the Friday night last time. Mm. Um, uh, I, you know what? Last night I did a, I did a, because we're recording this on Monday in anticipation of the world's greatest heat wave of all time. And yeah. um, I had a, you know, I had a look at the list of speakers because I was tweeting about it. And I was, to be honest, I was a bit, I was a bit taken aback by. Quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, what we've managed to assemble, Jim. Yeah, no, no, it's pretty impressive. I mean, and you've just done a, you've just, um, updated the program. Well, yeah. So I've, we've now got all the hardware talks scheduled. Um, yeah. We've got the legend that is David Willey coming. We've got, t- we've got two T twenty thirty fours, two T thirty fours. We've got a Matilda one, the worst tank of the war. Shut up. We've got a Matilda one. <laughs> we've got a Matilda one. No, does it yes. go? Yes. Oh my god. Yep. Yep. We've got an M ten Achilles. We've got um, got Sherman. We've got a Stuart. Which I'm quite excited about. Love Stuart. The one. Love the honey. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The honey's. Yeah. The honey's a cool. Covenanter. Yeah. Really? Yes. What the the goes? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Well, no. It's a covenant. We got. We got. Uh, we go. got. That's, uh, the, we... that's how the joke goes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't no. know. It's a covenant. <laughs> uh, but we got one. Um, so what I'm really excited about is we, we've been talking. Ever since last year, we talked to Monty's men. Now, Monty's men. Yeah. I just want to stress: are not your average reenactors these yeah. guys are you know if anyone's read confederates in the attic 
they're that level you know they take it incredibly seriously they only do yeah. second world war stuff they only yeah. brush their teeth with second world war toothbrushes when they're when they're in you know in the zone yeah um and, and they all look very thin and they don't eat and yeah. they only eat bully beef and, yeah. and boiled yeah. sweets and, and have yeah. tea with condensed milk yeah and so they look really the business and they take it all very seriously and they don't normally do public events at all they just do it for themselves and they they yeah. train using second world war training memoranda and all that kind of stuff yeah. Anyway, we've been trying to work out how do we get armor with infantry, with artillery, the the, the yeah. classic holy trinity of all yeah. arms combat. Yeah. And with with it looking realistic and not silly. So yeah. what we've come up with, and I'm really pleased that's about the, this. That's the that that dear listener is the key part. Realistic but not silly. That's realistic the, but not silly. This is the hard part. Yeah. Go okay. On. So what we're not we're not trying to go into action. We're not trying to pretend there's Jerry just around the corner in the wood or anything like that. You're not going to hear machine guns chattering. What no. you're going to see is armor moving forward with infantry across a stretch of land. Yeah. So you'll see them doing maneuvering in the way that they would maneuver. Yeah. Then as they push on through, the artillery will move up and set up, and then they will fire. But what you'll see, but the the visibility of seeing seeing those three components yeah. together moving together will certainly put a thrill in my heart. Yes, I, I think it's going to look really, really fantastic. So I'm we've not- set that up, and then we're having then we're having a kind of you know an armoured spin around bit where all the it'll be like a mini tank fest yeah for, for an hour where all the tanks will be in in motion beetling around and armored vehicles and um, and what's david going to be cars. Talk, what's david willie going to be talking about well he'll be for, commentating on those for, the, with, for those with of us. you for those of you who don't know david willie um is 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 the tank museum i think it's fair to say yeah. if you've if you've watched their youtube input you'll know he is a chap in the beard um, who seems to know absolutely everything about uh, yeah. um, every nut yeah. and bolt of every tank ever made? And what you do, he's got—he's basically got a green button which is on and a red button which is off. And, and once yeah. you press green, yeah, off he goes. Off he goes. Uh, and and you might think that Al and I talk a lot about Second no. World War and War Waffle, but when it comes to tanks, you ain't seen nothing yet until it, you've it, spoken to David it, Willey. It's very exciting, actually. He's—I mean, he is the he's, so. So those are, knowledge. He really is. So those those two things every day are our two showstoppers, along with the, the firing of the heavy anti-aircraft guns with searchlight, which, mm. I should tell you, can reach five miles skywards. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool. And then in between, there's lots of talks and all the rest of it. But the, as you say, the cast list of people that we've, we've, we've got, from Catcher Hoyer to Saul David to Max Hastings to John McManus from the US, from Martin Milner from Canada... To Alex Ritchie from Poland, from well, Jens Weiner to Bass Williams. It's boggling. To, yeah, we got Germans, Dutch, Austrians, yeah, um, Canadians, Americans. Yeah, it's international. It's it's truly. It's, international. It's, actually, we should start calling this national. The international we have waste festival. Yeah, and we've live music. Yes, um, we've uh, with Django band. With, with, with a certain Django Ned band. Holland doing his retro songs. Yeah, Jack Jacka Jack Shit doing the story yes. of his displaced. Uh, family. Yes. His father was a Polish resistor and his mum was a, or his adoptive family. I mean, he, his life story is extraordinary. He's joining us. Um, we've uh, the monarchy during the war. We've yeah. boring war with Philip Spacen O'Brien, who if, you're, if you've been following the um, war in Ukraine, you'll know is Twitter sensation. 
Yeah, yeah, Twitter censorship, carving out space for himself, talking about the logistics of war and the, the, the important side of that. Sean Scullion talking about Spain in the Second World War. Um, often neglected. Jonathan Fennell, who I will fanboy tirelessly when I yes. see him. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, Ian McGregor with his new book about um, Stalingrad, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, that is, a, that is fantastic. Jack Andy Man. Chatterton Jack talking Man. about this. Jack Mann. I mean, I know, he's, I he's one of the last surviving members of the SAS and SBS yeah. from the war. He was in North Africa, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. He was in the SAS in North Africa. I mean, he's older than the Matilda one. Yeah. <laughs> well, not quite. Yeah, he is, actually. Well, yeah, he is. Of course yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah of course and, he is. And the good, exciting news is I think I'm going to have my Bedford there. Oh, really? Yes. And what markings are you going for? 1939 to 1945. What, what markings are you going for with the Bedford? Well, obviously, I'm going to make it Sherwood Rangers. Right, okay. Duh. Right, okay. <laughs> you know, well, no, no, well, not obviously. If not, if you're, not if you're heading towards the Dorsets. Um, uh, well, I know. Well, I, well, the great beauty about it is you can always change. You can be fickle. And then on and then on uh, Friday night with the Family Stories uh, live thing, which um, I've been yes. picking up with my daughter, Scarlett, that um, is going... I think... It, is it going to uh, be good? I, I think it is. A little bit and, for everyone? Well, what's really great is we've got people reading their family stories. Amazing. So people who sent their stuff in will get up and get up and read their Fantastic. family stories to the to the audience. Which great. I, uh, and you, you and I will be doing a bit, and some of our some of our um, our stars, uh, our stars will be uh, star contributors will be will also be doing it. But but we've got some people who will be you know talking about their uncle Alf, which is really really yeah. I, I'm very very excited about and and looking forward to look at also that's one of those things where it's been in my head for ages and and now we'll find yes. out if it works. Well, of course it's going to work. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, and 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 with Morris Blick, who's a, a yes. Belton survivor. Yeah. Um, PCA uh, making his first return. I know the cravat is back. It, the cravat is back. So lots lots and lots. And there's camping for the for the brave. I'm going to be staying in a Premier Inn. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> You're not uh, camping in the. No. Snuggle up in the back of the Bedford. <laughs> no, that ain't, ain't going to happen. No. So I mean, it may be it may be that the, that's a that's a cooler option than um, a hotel with busted aircon. But uh, who knows? Um, who anyway, knows? Th- anyway. That, so that's this weekend. So that's Friday. That starts on Friday. There are day tickets, so if you can't manage the whole thing, of course, you can um, you can pick the bit you fancy. That's wehavewaysfest.co.uk, um, uh, 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 where you can get your tickets on the way. Or just have Marvel at the, the... Go look at the website and Marvel at the thing you're missing out on. How about that? That's the other option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we would love to see as many people as possible. It's, we it's, would. It's a lot of fun. We would, and fun. we're recording most of it, so most of it will come back to you as, as content at some point. The other thing I want to talk about was... Um, briefly touch on was the passing of Ken Tout. Yes, who, um, I know. Uh, and Brett lo- Freeman. Awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Ken, um, Ken, I mean, I interviewed Ken a long time ago about about um, Sherman Tanks in 2004, where we went to um, Crowborough to the to that collection up there, and, mm. and he showed me round the Sherman they had there. Oh. oh, look at this. This does that. Yeah, brilliant. What's brilliant about this gun is it's stabilised. Mm. We, we learned to fire on the move. And he was so sort of, he was so good at putting you there, explaining what it was like, putting you there and reassuring you that you'd have done fine too, even though it was absolutely ghastly. He had this, Ken had this. And then if you've read any of Ken's stuff, and we did we did an audio book um, um, right back at the start of the pandemic in 2020. We did one of his tank, exclamation mark, one of his books. His writing's really, really fascinating. And, oh, um, so good. That bit, the whole bit on the, the Michael Vittman day, which is, a, yeah. um, you know, what is it, 9th of August, I think it is, mm. when they, um, you know, they're, they're 
just in those trees and their woods and they're separated out and they see yep. all the firing they see the, the tigers come across but earlier on they have a fight with a panzer mark four and just where they are and you can go there and it's exactly the same spot and he marked up a map for me yeah so when i was really? there you can you knew exactly where you were and it was just as he described it in the book you know he said there's this you go down this track and suddenly there's this this kind of little really narrow little valley this weird valley and and they send off one troop down and and it's the squadron joker isn't it who's in there he yeah. goes he's he's down there and he has a, he's he's grown a little hitler mustache because it's funny yeah. and and they're <laughs> on the radio and suddenly they hear them being hit and the silence, and then they see a Mark IV, and uh, I think Ken knocks it out and sees it and, and sees it knocked out. And then yeah. a, an hour later, they're ordered to go down and investigate. And yeah. so his little, his tank goes down into this little hollow. And, and in his description, he says it's about the size of a football pitch. Yeah. And it absolutely is. And you, uh, width wise. And you go, yeah. and he goes down there, and they have to get at him and his tank commander get out and go and look for this guy with the Hitler moustaches I can't remember his name off the top of my head yeah. go, go and look for his um, uh, look for them and eventually he sees him and the guy is is half out of the turret just staring at him but completely dead Yeah, and, and there's this you get this sort of shock and revulsion of seeing his really good friends dead and also the the, the just unbelievable tension of wandering around in an area where yeah. it's extremely dangerous because you don't yeah. know what's around the corner. Yeah. And then he also scrabbles up the bank to see the Panzer IV that he's knocked out and sees the guy's been basically yeah. blown in half, the, the the commander. And it's it's just so sizzling. And when you're when you're there in this spot, you can't help but start feeling tense. And you yeah. know your 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 arms start to goosebump, and you can feel hairs on the back of your neck, and it, it's 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 just an incredibly atmospheric place. Yeah, you know, knowing yeah. what you know that took yeah. place there, it, it's yeah. it's one of the most memorable, brilliant bits of war writing I've ever read. That uh, sequence, that, 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 well, that but that the, the book is really fantastic because it's just is, so vivid, isn't it? It's yeah, just it is, and, it's, but it, and tank is twenty four hours. Of, of fighting in in tanks in Normandy, and he yeah. really captures that very oh, very God. very long day because because it, you know it's getting dark late, it's getting light early, you know you 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 log it up, you and maybe you get maybe you get a couple of hours, but you've got to refuel, you've got to eat, you've got to yeah. rearm, you've got to figure out what on earth you're going to be doing in the morning, you know the the the, the whole thing. There's a fantastic photo of him um, with his crew in Normandy on the tank museum page there's a an obituary for ken um on the tank museum uh, there's a really great picture of him, of him and his crew and they're and they're you know they're they're going through ration tins and smoking fags and and you know like having a having a moment off really really or really really fantastic picture of snapshot oh, of life, isn't that life in a crew oh, isn't that God, an awesome good, picture isn't it yeah yeah he was such a lovely guy and his wife yeah. was so lovely and he couldn't have been a gentler, more sort of, he was just, he was just, it was just a pleasure, Very, lovely to know him, lovely to, to, yeah. to have met him. I feel really lucky that I did. And I think he's another one of those guys who was a pacifist before the war and basically was resolved to having to, because he was a Quaker, I think. His parents were Quakers, weren't they? And they were very That's strict right. and there was no drinking yeah. and they had to go to lots, yeah. of lots of chapel on Sundays and wear That's their Sunday vests right. and stuff. Yeah. And, and, I think his and dad was a, suit, a shoemaker or shoe salesman like or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And he was Somewhere resolved. In, in, in Herefordshire. Yeah. 
and he was resolved to the fact he was going to have to go to war and did you know regarded it regarded it as his sort of as, as his bitter duty rather than anything else. That's but, a but, fabulous photo, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it an amazing picture? Look and at that the tins. Got, and that they've got Ken. That it's that that you know because that's just a picture taken of the crew. Yeah, he's second yeah. right, isn't he? That's like, yeah. very clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a yeah. nice guy. And he he ended up doing charitable work the rest of his life. Yep. That's right. Lovely yeah. bloke. And also a, a shout out to Brad Freeman as well, who I, I knew. I didn't know as well as Ken, but he was a lovely guy. He was in he was in the 506. He was Easy Company, 506 yeah. PIR. Yeah. So he's the Band of Brothers. And um, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. And again, he was a very modest, very gentle, humble yeah. fellow, rather kind of taken aback by the attention. And of course, you know, the attention was because he was one of the last. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. but it's, it's again, it's that kind of awful feeling that sort of wistful sinking feeling you get when you hear the news that you're never going to see them again that as a as a representative of that generation they're among the last and and you know they slipped away what's it going to do to history though to the study of it all well i don't think i don't think there'll be any let up in the interest to be perfectly honest in one way it's sort of it's weirdly kind of you know enables you to you know because it's very hard for a historian to contradict a veteran well but, that's but, it that, because that, that's, but, but that's, actually they're not always right because of but course, that's where i'm going with that question really is is know. does this mean at some point you'll be able to sort of you know so this is what they thought was happening but actually that wasn't what was happening at all or it may have looked like that from from where they were but really quite really well, quite I, different. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because I've been sort of reading back over stuff that I'm doing a little bit of boning up on certain things and looking back over stuff that I'd, interviews that I'd done a long time ago. And, you know, I was just, I was sort of thinking about the, the heat wave that's on and I was thinking about, about the heat in the desert and it made me kind of look at um interview I'd done with Sam Bradshaw and Albert Martin yeah. for a book yeah. I was doing in North Africa. And, you know, they were, they, you know, they were in the early eighties when I interviewed them. So they were incredibly compass mentors and yeah. they both had kept diaries, yeah. uh, which they very kindly let me look at. And, you know, th- I was sort of thinking, God, that is the perfect combination. You know, someone before they're too old, whose memories are crisp. So you can ask them stuff that you can, you can get them to fill in the gaps of questions that you might have that aren't answered by their diaries, but yeah. you've got the immediacy of their diaries and their diaries, obviously, you know, they then got interested and got their battalion war diaries as well and all that kind of stuff. So they were pretty on top of the detail and, and they were so vivid and, and, I was thinking, gosh, they are good. But then, you know, recent years, you know, veterans, it's all a bit, you know, last decade or so, with a few exceptions, they're all a bit rehearsed. They're all a bit kind of sort of the same old thing that they said a hundred times before and all the rest of it. Uh, which is one of the reasons why, having done Brothers in Arms for, for Casino, I've, I've yeah. been very determined to kind of focus mainly on letters and diaries yeah. Yeah, as yeah, yeah, my yeah. eyewitness accounts because they're, they're in the moment, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's no shortage of, of, of voices. I mean, the frustrating is things is, is things like you know, there's just no hardly any Indian voices, for example, yeah, hardly yeah. any, because it yeah. was the war was then consumed by partition, and yeah. no one really thought about doing it. There's never been never been a yeah. kind of oral history program in India or anything like that, so it's just gone, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it is sad. It is really, really sad. Mm. And you know, they were two really, really impressive people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's probably. I mean, we all we got time for because we yeah. are. We are, um, I mean, we've got lots Packing of last-minute homework to do before. Yeah. before I've got to up on Dunkirk. Yes, you have. Yeah. I mean, you, you've 
covered that before, though, Jim. Let's be honest. I know, but I've, I've, I've just gone through my PowerPoint, and I've got some cracking pictures. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a story that you can never get bored of. So just, just Dunkirk. So are you, because uh, I mean, we all know the James Holland method, which is to say that if the Battle of Britain started on the third of September, ninety-three, when did Dunkirk start, Jim? Well, there might be a little bit of nod to fighter command. <laughs> yeah, but when did it start? That's what I want to know. If well, I'm reading written. the, if I'm no the Dunkirk, if I'm reading the James Holland book about Dunkirk. Where do you? Where are you going to start, Jim? Well, May tenth. May tenth. <laughs> well, no, I think it's got to be third of September, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm starting very strictly with with Sunday the twenty sixth. Oh gosh, yeah, amazing. I'm doing. Incredible. I'm doing. It's it's a week. It's it's that week. Okay. It's Sunday to it's Sunday okay. to Saturday. Uh, but on, uh, by the way, on the subject of preparation, I spoke to m- my father, the Colonel, who's talking about the the sappers at Pegasus Bridge. I said, "How are you getting on with your talk?" He says, "Well, I'm just just figuring out how on earth they did it." <laughs> he knows okay. what he well, knows that's what they, not to miss he, he knows what they did just, I'm just trying to figure out how they bloody did it that's amazing maybe they brought the bridges in sideways and turned, you know like how they actually fitted the Bailey bridges in and all that yeah brilliant anyway brilliant, brilliant, anyway, brilliant. we right. will we, we will see those of you who are joining us at the weekend at the weekend um, I will uh, see you in a few hours I'll see you in a few hours for sort of uh, heatwave shenanigans and then yep. we will Um, We very much look forward to seeing you at the weekend and the podcast will keep coming. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.